If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me please to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Now our sermon text will be verses 22 down to verse 32. Ephesians 5 verses 22 down to verse 32. As you're turning there, let me say a word of thank you and appreciation to Pastor Bill and to Dr. Todd for the privilege of being here this morning to share with you from God's Word. Uh, I first officially met Pastor Bill when I was a professor at another school, but the first time I encountered you was when I was a college student and you preached at Trinity Baptist Church in Louisville that met at Christian Academy High School. And from that point on, I thought, here's a brother I hope someday I'll be able to become friends with and then met you officially several years later. And you are a dear Dear brother, I love you like a father in the ministry to me, and it's such a privilege and an honor to share with you uh, this morning. So let's read God's Word together. We'll pray and walk through the text. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 32. Actually, down to verse 33. Hear the Word of God. I'm reading from the ESV. Wives. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And look out, husbands, because it gets very difficult from this part forward, okay? This point forward. Hear this challenging word. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And and how do you love her? Gave her some chocolate, right? No, no. He gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, you love your wives as you love your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own life, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two, one husband, one wife, shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In verse 33, 
However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects or honors her husband. Let's pray together and ask God to help us understand and apply his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, this morning we are very much aware that we are at your mercy today. We need you by your grace to awaken us to the biblical truth that you love the family, that you love both the church family and you love families to the point that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to absorb the wrath of God on the church's behalf. And in those churches, we have families of people redeemed from tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. And we pray this morning as we hear your word specifically about the church and the family, we're asking you, O God, Would you help us to understand that we should love the church family and we should love the family of those who are in these churches that you've redeemed? So God, would you help me to give your people a word today? Would you help your people to receive it? And may we all be transformed by the power of the gospel that speaks into our church lives and our family lives lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. From the very beginning, the family was a very important part of God's good creation. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 make it very clear that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and on the final day of creation, he created the culmination of creation, the climax of creation, the most important aspect of creation, namely human beings. And he created those human beings as male and female. And those two human beings, male and female, Adam and Eve, they complemented each other. And they had different roles and functions, even though they both shared in being created in the image of God. God created them for specific purposes, for his glory and for their good. And it wasn't until the serpent deceived Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 that the family began to fragment and was broken and was fractured because of original sin and because of the devastating consequences of that sin. And you see some of those consequences, don't you, in Genesis chapter 3, where God says that the ground's not going to produce as easily as it once did, and that there's going to be some kind of turmoil between the man and the woman, and things are not going to function as smoothly as they would have if male and female would not have fallen because of sin. In every aspect 
of creation, even the family and even the church family is affected by this sin. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the midst of God's judgment upon creation, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, God promises something very important. And the promise is that he would crush the seed of the serpent by means of the seed of the woman. He promises, in other words, that he would, in fact, restore everything that Adam and Eve lost. And we know as we read the Bible in its totality that in Jesus Christ, the second Adam, God acted to redeem sinners from their sin, to restore the cosmos, and to reconcile those broken human relationships first to God and to one another. And we see... Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 1 and other places that Jesus Christ is the ultimate provision by which God brings about this restoration. Let me clarify for one moment and say this. And by the way, my introductions are always long, okay? So bear with me for a moment. One of my arguments is this morning is that the fundamental hope for the family, the church family and the human family, is the gospel of King Jesus. But I'm not naive. I turned 40 in May. I've been married for 17 years, a Christian for 22 years, and a father for 10. And I'm very much aware that gospel-believing families, they struggle. That churches that believe the gospel, they, they struggle. And that families that love Jesus, sometimes they end in divorce because of sin. But my basic point this morning from this text will be this, is that God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ, when rightly applied and prayerfully and patiently and intentionally pursued with one another in the context of Christian community in the church, And in the course of one's life in Christian discipleship, that individual church families and individual families in the church can conform into the image of Jesus Christ. Amen? There is victory for the church family and for families in the church in King Jesus who is exalted on high, who has conquered the power of sin and death in the grave, and God has resurrected him over all creation to reign over your marriages, your families, and your blessed church. In our text this morning, Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 32, I think, will help us see this truth. But first, let me give you a little bit of context, okay? We're going to get to the text. Just just bear with me a little bit longer. In Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and 3, Paul sets us up for what he's going to say about the family in Ephesians chapter 5. In other words, every single one of Paul's ethical exhortations in chapters 4, 5, and 6 are grounded in, everyone is grounded in what Paul says in chapters 1 through 3. And what does he say? Oh, he says so many glorious things. He says that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation 
of the world in love to be holy and blameless. And that he predestined us, shows us in advance to be his people. And then he says in Ephesians 1 verse 7 that in Christ Jesus, individual people have redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ. Hear this. If you are in Christ today, you're in Christ because Jesus has redeemed you by his blood. And he doesn't leave you alone to fight for the health of your family. He covers you and your family if you believe the gospel in his blood. Paul says further in chapters 2 and 3 that God in Christ worked in history so that we would believe the gospel. In other words, he raised us from the dead, 2, 1 to 10 of Ephesians, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, and he's reconciling through the cross human beings by the blood of Jesus. God is about the business of doing what God wants to do, and God wants to redeem people and put them in harmony and community with each other in the church through the blood and the resurrection of Jesus. So that, when you get to chapters 4 and 5, you get these therefores that pop up. That tell you, because of what God has done for you in Christ, therefore here's how we ought to live. And particularly as it relates to the family, I think Paul is saying that husbands and wives should live as redeemed people of God. As husbands lovingly, sacrificially care for their wives, and as wives lovingly and sacrificially submit to the leadership of their husbands. So three questions related to this text. Here's the first one I want us to think about. How does Paul in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33, encourage the church family as the household of God? For the purpose of strengthening the families in the household of God. If you notice in verses 22 to 23, I think Paul's main point is is that marriage between one man and one woman should picture, mirror the relationship between Christ and the church. One husband, Jesus, one bride, the church. And marriage ought to picture that relationship and particularly in verses 22 notice with me verse 22 and following Paul addresses the wives wives submit or place yourselves under the authority or the leadership of your own husbands as to the Lord word of commentary here when submission is rightly understood and rightly practiced in the way in which God intended it to be practiced, in redemptive marriages. This is not an oppressive or an abusive category. Do you understand that? I want to speak with clarity on this point. Paul is writing to, I think, Christian husbands and Christian wives in Ephesians, just as he's writing to Christian masters of slaves in Ephesians. He's addressing the family life here, and he seems to be talking to Christians. And so he's assuming here that these husbands, I think, and these wives are believers, and he's exhorting the wives to submit to their husbands in a way that honors the Lord. But that does not imply that their wives, the wives of these husbands, are somehow doormats. You understand that? Give me an amen, somebody. Do you understand that? They're not punching bags. 
So hear this preacher carefully. This word submission assumes the husband is loving his wife as Christ loved the church. It's assuming that. So women, please hear me this morning. I want to be very careful here. I recognize that some of you might find, of you, might find yourselves married to unchristian men today. But here's a word from God. That God has an expectation for wives to submit, but he has an expectation for husbands to love sacrificially as Christ loves the church, not abusively. Do you hear that? Not abusively. Paul says, here's why, wives, you submit to your husbands. By the way, submit doesn't mean you always agree with your husband either. Thank God my wife does not always agree with me because I'm often wrong. It means there's a recognition that God has placed me as the leader of my home and that she lovingly comes alongside of me and compliments me and empowers me and supports me in that leadership and follows me in that leadership. But when I'm leading us astray, she says, honey, look out, right? And here's why wives should lovingly submit to their husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord, don't miss that. Because the husband is the head of the wife, even as the Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself Savior. Christ is the head. What does that mean? He's the, he's the leader of the church. In Ephesians 1, he is reigning victoriously and sovereignly over the church. That doesn't mean that our leadership as husbands is, are, is a direct one-to-one correlation between Christ's sovereignty over the church, but it does mean that our leadership is to reflect the kind of leadership that we find in our Lord and the submission to us needs to imitate the submission of the church to Christ. And he continues in verse 24 and says, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, submit in everything to their husbands. I have some practical application I want to give you here in a second, but let me clarify this last phrase. See that phrase in verse 24? In everything. Do you see that? So the preacher sometimes needs some help, and I need some help this morning. Are, are, you, are you with me? You see that phrase in everything, verse 24? Let me clarify what I think that everything means. I think it means simply that God has given the husband a position of leadership in the home and in the church. And particularly as it relates to husband and wife relationships, that a wife has a responsibility to her own husband and a husband to his own wife. It doesn't mean, hear this carefully, it does not mean that if you find yourself in an abusive situation where you just submit and don't tell anybody. That is incorrect. Do you understand that? you understand that? Paul is not, Paul is not advocating wives submitting to a situation that harms them. He's advocating assuming 
Christ-exalting leadership over the wife, and he's therefore suggesting that wives should submit to that leadership with respect to a pattern of life. A parallel to this statement is what you find in chapter 1 when Paul says that God is in Christ and that Christ is being filled up with all things or filling up all things continually. So the idea is is that just as Jesus is sovereign, is a leader over the church and over the entire cosmos, so also husbands are and wives are to acknowledge that. But this doesn't mean that wives submit when their husbands are hurting them or are leading them away from the gospel. It's my view at least. So hear that, sisters. This is assuming a God-honoring relationship and that husbands are using their leadership and their privilege well in this relationship. So here's some practical applications. How does this text suggest that the entire church body should function as the family or the household of God? In order to strengthen families within the church of God, number one, and I have a few applications here. Number one, grace should cultivate a culture that incorporates into the life of the church prayer together for healthy and stable families. How do you apply this text? Pray that wives would do what this text says well. Pray that husbands will do what this text says well. And what does the text say about husbands? Let me tell you what the text says about husbands before I give you some more application. And I would argue, actually, that this is probably the hardest challenge in the text, at least for me as a man. It's easy for me to say to my wife, submit to me, honey. But it's another thing for me or for her to expect this, verse 25. And notice Paul spends most of his time here. Husbands, and listen up, husbands, listen up, husbands. I I realize that families sometimes don't have a two-parent household. But Paul is assuming here a husband and wife relationship, all right? I'm going to have some applications in a moment for single-parent families. But listen up, husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, here's one reason why I believe Paul's assuming when he gives this exhortation to wives, he's assuming that these husbands will not abuse their leadership over their wives because he tells the husbands right after this exhortation to love their wives as Christ loved the church. This is not a power play or abuse of power. This is a loving, sacrificial leadership wherein a wife is compelled by the sacrificial love of her husband to submit to her husband. You understand that? Do I need to calm down? Well, I'm not going to. Listen to this adverb. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And this is what he did. He gave himself up for her. He died as a substitutionary atonement for her. Husbands, how do you know you love your wives? It's not just because you pay the mortgage on time. But that's the responsibility, isn't it? It's because you sacrificially give yourself up in service to your wife. That's how you know you love your wife. 
that you have her best interest in mind and you're willing to lay down your preferences at times for the sake of edifying your wife and building her up in Jesus for the glory of God and the exaltation of his Christ and the edification of those in the church. And Christ gave himself, verse 26, that he might sanctify her Setting her apart, he goes on and says, cleansing her, verse 26. Presenting her, verse 27, to himself in splendor, verse 28. Notice this again, husbands, in the same way, oh my goodness, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. I don't know about you, but normally I don't walk around wanting to hurt myself. Now, we all sometimes do things like eat the wrong foods, not get enough sleep, that will have an effect on how our bodies function. But the basic point here is that Paul is making a general observation that we as human beings, and particularly men here, don't generally mistreat our own Bodies, and therefore, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. You know why? Do you know why? I love this. I love this. You know why? Because our wives are a part of our body, right? In the beginning, God created male and female, and the two became one flesh. That's what he says, isn't it? If you jump down, and he says in verse 31, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Not two flesh, but one flesh in holy matrimony, in holy union, to the point that a man leaves his family and unites to his wife. And in the ancient world, That did not necessarily mean a geographic separation. But thank God for geographic separations, right? In the ancient world, when husbands got married, they moved in with their parents and they were responsible for the well-being of their family. In fact, right now, one of my students is from a part of the world where he has an obligation when he graduates to go back to his country and to take care of his family. And he and his wife will move in with his family and care for his family. But the point Paul's making is the most important human relationship on earth that a husband and wife will have is between Husbands and wives, my wife should be the most, and your wife, husband, should be the most important person in your life. Of course, next to Jesus. And Paul is saying, because she is a part of your body, you are one flesh. And we, as husbands and wives, are members of his body, right? The church of Jesus. So that when our marriages are reflecting oneness and unity and harmony, we are witnessing to the power of the unity of the church for which Jesus died. So going back to the application, how in the world can we do this kind of work? One thing you can do is, I think, as a church is families intentionally pursue other families, families loving other families. 
And when you get together, sharing fellowship with one another, pray for each other's families. Be a beautiful thing, wouldn't it? And maybe this is happening. Be a beautiful thing if when you got together with families, some of that time you were together would be spent toward praying for families in the church. So you're having some folks over to watch a Alabama football game. Pastor Bill's on the front row here. In the midst of enjoying that game, maybe during the halftime break, let's just take some time and say, let's just pray for, for our families at Grace. And just call out some prayers for the Lord to bless families. As families love families. And that will spill over in to the familial relationships that you have in the body of Christ. In chapter 6, Paul actually mentions prayer. He talks about putting on the gospel. And then one thing he says at the end of 6 is, is that we should pray. Each time our families spend time together in prayer, we should plead for other families. Now, let's talk about individual families for a moment. We're going to talk about family worship during the lunch and what that looks like. But when you have family worship, and I hope you do, spend some time as you worship with your family praying for other families in grace. You can't think that Family health will come only from one Sunday of church a week. It needs to be a a regular rhythm of life that you pour out your soul before the Lord, pleading with Him to pour out His Spirit upon the families in this church and do life together as you do that. Maybe you're asking, what should we pray, Jarvis? When we pray for families, I don't know all the families in grace. What should I pray? Well, here's an example of what you can pray. Pray that God would apply Pastor Bill's sermons to the families in this church. You understand that? The sermon should not be left here, right? You should take the sermon with you out there. When you hear sermons preached, they hit you in the moment of hearing it preached, but you carry that sermon with you to get you through the week. And when you're praying as a family, pray for God to apply the sermon to your lives and to the lives of other families. That is church life, isn't it? Body life doesn't stop when we leave this morning. Body life continues throughout the week as we're pleading with God for the Word of God and the Spirit of God to work together in the hearts of the people of God in your church. You also pray for the needs of other families. And this assumes that you actually spend time with people. You know, the one another statements that you find in Paul's letters, you can't do the one another stuff unless you are together, right? I can't do one another by myself. I can do me by myself. But when I'm spending time with other families, praying, applying, serving together in the life of the church, which includes within the four walls and then outside of the four walls. I think we're living out, I think, what it means to be church. Second application, we didn't read this verse, but notice in verse 21, chapter 5, Paul uses this word in verse 21. He says, submitting to one another, out of reverence for Christ. Do you see that in 521? It's interesting, that word submitting in verse 21 is the same word in verse 22 that applies to wives. 
So here's something very important. In verse 22 and following, Paul is giving specific commands to wives to submit and for husbands to love in a certain way. And then he talks about the slave, master, and the parent-child relationship. But in verse 21, when he talks about submitting, he's talking about the corporate congregation, congregations, submitting to one another. And this actually goes back to the command he gives earlier in verse 18 and 19 when he talks about being filled with the Spirit of God. And he says, be filled with the Spirit of God. And he tells you how to be filled with the Spirit of God in verse 19 when he talks about singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Verse 20, giving thanks always for everything. And then verse 21, submitting to one another. So guess what? The individual families and the corporate family, they are responsible to each other. Do you understand that? You as an individual family, you're not left by yourselves to live the way Jesus redeemed you to live, but you are accountable to your church body. In other words, let me say it this way. It's the church's responsibility to help families in this church to live in a manner pleasing to God. Otherwise, what does Paul say in verse 21? Submitting, you all submitting to one another. And then wives, you specifically submit to your own husbands. And then husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved the church. Why does he talk about this? Unless he wants the marriages in our churches to be held accountable by the churches in which we serve. So guess what? If you know families in this church who are suffering in their marriages, in their parenting, it's your responsibilities to help them fight through those struggles. That's what it means to be a church, right? We're going to be there for each other, aren't we? Yes, on that deathbed when we're dying. But also in life when we're healthy but our marriages are falling apart, we're going to be there for each other and walk with each other. That's the second application, that we are held accountable by the church. My marriage is the church's business. I have a mentor, Bill knows him, I won't mention his name, but he said to me, if you ever mistreat Anna, I will, I'll say it nicely, not like that very much, (laughs) but he wasn't that nice. And he was reminding me that he's holding me accountable. So the Church of Jesus Christ helps families, strengthens families. Holding families accountable. Second point. Second major point. Second question. How does the marriage mirror the relationship between Christ and the church? This is a powerful text. I don't have, obviously, a lot of time to unpack it line by line, but this is a rich text. In verse 22, Paul, as I said earlier, exhorts wives to submit to, place under the leadership, place themselves under the leadership of their own husbands to the Lord. This verb submit is used later in verse 24 to refer to the church submitting to Christ. This word is so very important. Wives, in terms of human relationships, hear this very, very carefully. Wives, it is your responsibility to submit to your own husbands. No one's wife 
is obligated based on this text to submit to me unless I have pastoral authority over them. You understand that? I mean, this is a marital command here. He's not telling you everything there is to know about submission, but he is saying that wives submit to their own husbands, which means no other man on the planet has any biblical mandate to expect expectations from my wife that only apply to me, her husband. And if you won't say it, I will. Amen. And no other woman has the biblical right to think that she should have the same kind of expectations out of me for her life as my wife does for me as her husband. We're obligated to each other. We love everybody, but I don't love everybody the same way I love my wife. And if you don't believe that, you're setting yourself up for disaster. You cannot compromise, wives and husbands, your love for your spouses by naively thinking because you're a Christian and this person is a Christian, it's okay to share the same kind of love with another man or woman that you would with your spouse. That is not right. Till death do you apart. I don't have any other relationship with any other person like that. Nobody else in my life is one flesh except my wife. And nobody can be my wife's husband like I can. And nobody can be my wife like she can. There are many things that many people can do better than I can, but they can't love my wife the way I love my wife as her husband. That's my responsibility and vice versa, right? But as it relates to husbands, in verses 25 to 31, and then again in verse 33, Paul addresses husbands. So I'm going to hit you pretty hard here, husbands, once again. By vir- virtue of being the stewardship, having the stewardship of husband, God invests into you responsibility of leading your family and sacrificing for your family, particularly your wife, well. Our wives are not, hear this carefully, okay, I want to parse this very carefully. We should not view our wives as though they are our employees. Whom we give a paycheck at the end of the week for cooking the food and cleaning the house. A few years ago, I heard a person I respect talk about his wife as though he was her boss and he was giving her a day off. And I thought, are you going to increase her salary too? That's not the kind of relationship that God is outlining here. Yes, there are domestic responsibilities that God gives to families, and and women often bear the bulk of those responsibilities, don't they? And thank God for wives who are gifted to cook and to clean. But my wife is not my cook, right? She's not my laundry washer. She's my wife. Husbands, she's your wife. And thank God if she is kind and loving enough to serve in the ways in which she serves to make family life go smoother. But please, husbands, don't view your wife as someone who punches your time clock and to whom you pay a paycheck each week. It's not the kind of relationship for which Jesus died. She's your wife. Bone of bone and flesh 
of flesh. So husbands, nourish your wife. How do you do that? Here's some application. Take her out on some dates. Look, I'm preaching to the choir here. I'm not, I, I don't have all the answers either. I'm convicted. I told my wife, I said, honey, Pastor Bill, Pastor Todd gave me a topic that's convicting me. And she said, well, good. I can go months, never think about taking my wife out on a date. We spend time together as a family. We are together, my my wife and I and my son, we are together 99.9% of the time. We do everything together. But I don't do a very good job at nourishing her and my relationship the way I should. And thank God that that mommy-in-law has come and she's going to give us free babysitting and hopefully we'll go out on some more dates. Husbands, take your wives out on dates. Husbands, lead in prayer, not just over the food. Husbands, lead in reading scripture together with your wife. Husbands, pursue your wife like you are and love the way you were when you first got married. Third and final point, because time is gone. I have more application, but time is already gone. Let me give you one more point, and then we'll bring it to a close. How does this text encourage single parents and their parental responsibilities? Now, you might be thinking, Jarvis, it doesn't encourage single parents. And I want to clarify something here. That God's design in Genesis 1 and 2 is for husbands and wives together. That constitutes a biblical family, I think, in terms of God's original design and creation. So it's good and beautiful when husbands and wives are married and stay married. But people die. We have widows and widowers perhaps in the congregation today. And we have single parents today who might be single parents for a variety of reasons. And the word of God is this, if you are in Christ, he's redeemed you. And you have a responsibility, even as a single parent family, to reflect God's redemption in a way that's consistent with your situation as a single parent. So maybe again you're asking, well, where do you get that from this text? To which I respond by saying, remember the context of this text. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul commands the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. In chapter 5, verse 1, he commands the Ephesians to be imitators of God as beloved children. In verse 2, to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, So here's what I'm saying. If you look at the whole context... Single parents have a responsibility too. To imitate God in your lives. Don't think this morning, well, I'm not married, I'm a single parent, therefore the sermon doesn't apply to me. No, it does apply to you, just in a different way. You are a family, even if you are single, a single parent family today. God wants you to honor your family. So here's how you can honor your family as a single parent or single mom or dad. 
Walk in love and imitate God in your family. Spend time and prayer discipling your kids, enjoying your children in the life of the church and in the home. Invest in meaningful relationships with other single parents who are walking with Jesus faithfully. And spend time putting yourself and your children around two-parent families who love Jesus, who can come alongside of you and walk with you through life as it is perhaps more difficult for you as a single-parent family. I was raised by a single-parent auntie. She worked two jobs. I still don't know how she did it. And looking back, I thank God that she sacrificed for me. But there were many things that we were lacking in a single-parent home. And we didn't have the church to help us because we weren't believers. Those of you in the body who are single parents, don't be too proud. Reach out to the body who loves you. And body life happens in part by means of families that are two-parent families and single-parent families walking together with each other, helping each other conform into the image of Christ inside the walls of the church and then outside the walls as well. So in conclusion, i got like 15 other points that I could give you. I really do. But in conclusion, Jesus died and resurrected for church families and families in the church. So brothers and sisters, pursue each other in love as the church family and as individual families so that Jesus Christ would be honored and so that your lives would be conformed into his image by the word of God and the spirit of God for the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would do this in this church, in their lives. We pray that families would be restored, families that are hurting would be encouraged. We're praying that the gospel would be sufficient to provide for them everything they need for eternal life and godliness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Jarvis. The family of God gathered to encourage families is one of the, one of the things that we want to be as Grace Baptist Church. As we minister to one another and love one another, care for one another.